0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, officials offer reassurances on the safety of the AstraZeneca vaccine as some European countries suspend its use. Bottom line is that there is no current evidence that the vaccine is causing the reported blood clots. And we are not using the same batches of vaccine as were used in Europe. Discussions continue about whether to reopen the Canada-US border. I think we're all going to wait patiently
1: uh, until uh, such a time as the health situation allows us to loosen border restrictions uh, internationally. Uh, That'll be uh, eventually, but not for today.
0: And the Kielberger brothers take aim at members of parliament. Politicians are not impartial. Without recognizing our right to present our own evidence, this committee is trying we charity in the courts of public opinion and forcing testimony. One member of Parliament, Mr. Polyev, even threatened us with imprisonment before a summons was issued. It's Tuesday, March sixteenth. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Susan, thank you for being with us today.
1: Good morning, Mike.
0: Let's talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine. The Prime Minister is saying it's safe. Of course, uh, there were a couple of European countries that uh, have temporarily suspended its use because of concerns about the safety, although uh, many scientists are saying we shouldn't look at it that way. There's no evidence uh, to suggest there's a link between the vaccine and blood clots. Uh, So where do you think that leaves us as Canada moves into a phase where we're going to be vaccinating a lot of people over the next few weeks.
1: The The AstraZeneca story is a really interesting one, because if you pick up your papers, or virtually this morning, digitally, you can see good news and bad news on AstraZeneca. As you say, on the one hand, there is emerging or, or conflicting evidence about um whether it's useful or whether it's harmful. You see some countries moving to restrict it. Here in Canada, CBC had a report uh, last night saying that it is now going to be administered to people over 65. We, uh, Quebec has already made that decision. <clears throat> but um, I, I think the best description I've seen about this ongoing debate on AstraZeneca is was from a doctor who said, we are watching science in real time. And because this is you know, all we're seeing evidence build up over time. We're seeing scientists test theories, change their minds. So, AstraZeneca, you know, has introduced an, an element of doubt about vaccines to some people. We saw um, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney yesterday saying people can choose between it and others. Uh, I guess the, the story is that this is what happens when a vaccine gets introduced. Widely, massively, and quickly, is that uh, the story of this is being written as we're watching it. Sure, but it, it does seem that what's what's going to happen is that AstraZeneca is going to be available to Canadians over sixty-five if the reports from CBC are correct.
0: Yeah, but it's worth pointing out that uh, that a small number of cases in a situation like this does not represent. Uh, you know, I remember when uh, when what's now called the Rogers Centre, originally the Sky Dome in Toronto, opened, and uh, it, within a, f- a few days of it opening, somebody had a heart attack at the, at the uh, sports facility, and people thought maybe the stairs were too steep or something like that. And in reality, all that had happened uh, was that when you bring 40,000 people together in one place, there is a risk that one of them is going to have a heart attack anyway. Uh, That's
1: right. This is a we, yeah. we were seeing mass a mass experiment.
0: Right? Yeah, and and there's just because something happens uh, to somebody who you know again it's back to if a if a precedes b a didn't necessarily cause b just because something happened to somebody who received the vaccine doesn't mean it's because of the vaccine.
1: That's right. Yeah. I think I think we're learning how much emotional freight is attached to this right. too, and emotion and science don't always go together. People are anxious for it, but they're frightened, uh, they're nervous, and overall, as we've said many times on uh, <laughs> Tuesday mornings here, uh, people just want this to be over, and they don't want any more bad news, and every tiny bit of bad news scares them.
0: Yeah. All right, let's turn to some of the other consequences of, of what's been happening with the ha- pandemic. There is talk that even as Canadians are getting vaccinated, that we're moving into a third wave and that lockdowns are going to have to happen again uh, in many parts of the country. Uh, and there's also discussion around when the Canadian-U.S. border is going to reopen again. What are you hearing about that?
1: Um, both sort of, you know... Uh, enthusiasm dampening news. I would not expect the border to be open. You know, it it is just this is rolling along until everything is under control. You know, you saw Joe Biden last week saying Americans will be celebrating Independence Day uh, in in an almost normal way, but I don't believe that uh, they are going to be celebrating it in Canada. You know, it's uh, um we've managed to make some system work where we are getting essential services and travelers across the border. And I think that's going to continue. I would probably think a past uh, independence day on the, um, on the whole question of, of um, vaccine passports is now becoming a, yeah. a very about that. interesting story. Yeah. I wrote about this today too. my, I think it's too late to have any kind of official document. I mean, there are too many levels of government, too many people involved in, you know, we're not going to have one official vaccine passport in Canada. Um we we may have to have something for traveling abroad, but my contention is is that the private sector is going to lead the government on this one. I think you're going to see employers and businesses insisting on some kind of proof of vaccination to either Maybe not to hire and fire people, but to determine the conditions of their working. You know, if you're in a restaurant and you have one vaccinated employee and one un- unvaccinated employee, are you going to put the unvaccinated one in circulation with the general public, or maybe have them do a job that doesn't involve that? I I think we are we're going to see businesses lead on this one. But normally through this pandemic we've seen that the government has been doing all the measures of pandemic fighting and the businesses go along. But I think on vaccine passports you're going to see the private sector insisting on them and and using some form of them.
0: Yeah, that that's uh, and the, I guess one of the questions that would arise from that is uh, whether they will actually require a document or whether they will simply ask the question, uh, similar to before the pandemic saying to people, hey, if you're sick, don't come into work, uh, as opposed to actually taking people's temperature before they walk through the door. Um, yeah, I wonder I, I, I wonder the I think... level of, of, of proof that will be expected. Will it be the honor system? Will it be some documentation? Uh, I'm curious about that.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that um, people are getting official kind of documents right now or even any kind of certificate so that, you know, that makes things rife for baking it and saying you have been vaccinated. The law may sort this out. Uh, If if you see companies starting to get sued for spreading COVID around, that would tend to focus the mind on asking for some Mm. kind of proof.
0: All right, let's talk about the testimony of Mark and Craig Kielberger of the WE Charity before the House of Commons Ethics Committee yesterday. Um, I think there are really two elements to this story. One is, was there anything interesting that came from their testimony? And secondly, I think there's still some discussion around what's left for, uh, for Parliament to explore here. I know there are people saying that perhaps... Other authorities should be looking into some of the business dealings of the charity and the Kielburgers, um, but is this still the business of Parliament?
1: I, I would say definitely it's the business of Parliament because it was a, a you know a, 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 a massive flirtation with uh, you know almost sending a lot of public money their way, and I think you know that it, it's good to see parliamentarians asking hard questions about stuff like this. I, the the consensus seems to be from people who've been watching the story closely I'd be one of them um, that we didn't learn a whole bunch more yesterday what I, I think the story writ large is um, as you say it's um, it's a story of you know a, a charity and a government I'm interested in the way in which this is a story about, you know, uh, that's an overused metaphor, but flying too close to the sun. It just seemed, it's when politics meets celebrity and how fleeting that is. It, what was very obvious through the testimony and through some other things the, the Kielbergers are saying is how much they've gone off politics. They used to be very fond of courting politicians and um, how much they, uh, their own celebrity, kind of did them in and that's a story very similar to trudeau who was a celebrity in himself and i think that you know it almost stands out as a separate adventure from this pandemic is is this strange story of when celebrity goes bad or when celebrity turns on you and i think that the, the the lesson from all of this is that celebrity and politics is always a dangerous combination It's intriguing, too. I don't know that I've seen any prime minister to whom controversy and scandals seem to last so long. You know, other prime ministers had bad things happen, but they tended to, you know, go away after a while. Uh, This prime minister, the SNC-Lavalin saga, dragged out and out and out and this we charity story is not going away either. It dented his popularity in the middle of the pandemic. So I think it was a reminder of some of the some of the issues surrounding this Prime Minister, this government and sort of the, the state of politics mm. during the pandemic. But I don't know that that we're gonna learn any more, and I don't know that any more damage can be done. I think if you've decided this was a bad story for the Prime Minister, your mind's not going to be changed. And if you thought it was nothing, that wasn't gonna be changed either.
0: All right. Great to have your thoughts on all of this today, Susan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star bottom line is that there is no current evidence that the vaccine is causing the reported blood clots and we are not using the same batches of vaccine as were used in europe now here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today in the ottawa citizen raywat dionandan argues in favor of taking the first vaccine you're offered he writes the goal is not necessarily to get the best immunity for the individual but to get good enough immunity in a maximum number of people as soon as possible. This will not happen if we choose to wait months for a preferred vaccine. Every day spent unvaccinated is a day in which one might become seriously ill and possibly die. It is not rational to prolong that vulnerability, hoping for slightly better immunity weeks or months down the road. In the Globe and Mail, Stephen Sademan argues it's time for a new Defence Minister. He writes, The Defence Minister is not just a politician, but one of only two people, the Prime Minister being the other, who is accountable to Parliament for the Canadian Armed Forces. He is legally responsible for the management and direction of the forces. One of the most important elements of leadership is to be a good role model. The current Defence Minister is not not after mishandling the allegations against its highest-ranking officer. It is time for him to go. At iPolitics, Errol Mendez argues, We say never again, then it happens again in China, and we do almost nothing. Mendez writes, Canadian society can't bend its foundational commitments to the rule of law, to the laws practiced by China and other dictatorships. We can't ignore our oft-stated commitments to the promotion and protection of universal human rights embodied in the promise of never again. We can't just stand by while yet again crimes against humanity are committed. Canada must develop a longer-term strategy and policy for China. We can't stand by in this assault on democracy around the world. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The House of Commons isn't sitting this week, but some committees are still holding hearings. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, one of them is a special commons committee on Canada-U.S. economic relations. Mark, this afternoon, the special committee on Canada-U.S. economic
1: relations will hold its fourth hearing. This is the committee which was set up following a Conservative Party motion, which eventually gained all-party support. The chief focus is to look into issues of critical concern, such as the Biden administration's proposed Buy American trade policy, which could hurt Canada. There's also a focus on the administration's plans to shut down the Line 5 pipeline pipeline, pipeline, which transports Canadian oil to Michigan and American markets. The committee has heard a number of witnesses on that issue. Today, it will hear from a senior executive of the Enbridge Company, which runs the pipeline, as well as from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and the Canadian American Business Council. That hearing starts at 4 p.m. Eastern Time.
0: Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will meet virtually with volunteers from the volunteer-driven organization Conquer COVID-19. He will also meet virtually with frontline workers from a retirement living community in St. John, New Brunswick. Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan will attend the virtual Berlin Energy Transition Dialogue, where he will take part in a public panel about global energy transformation. Economic Development Minister Melanie Joly will make a virtual announcement in support of a local manufacturer in the Niagara area. She will also make a FedNOR announcement focused on trade and business expansion in the Sault Ste. Marie area. And Special Representative for the Prairies, Jim Carr, will virtually visit the Women's Enterprise Centre of Manitoba to announce support for women-led businesses. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, March the 16th. Tune into primetime politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.